We're continuing on uh, talking about the, the names and the, the titles of, of Christ uh, this month, of course, uh, with uh, Easter next week, uh, talking about the things surrounding Passover. We began talking about the Man of Sorrows at the end of, of last month, and, and, and some of the, uh, we're going to look at some of the titles around that idea, some of the things. And when we look at some of the names, um, and just in general, some of the words and phrases that we, we run across in our, our scriptures are confusing. Words sometimes get confusing uh, because definitions of words are not always clear. That's one of the things that, that we find. Um, and it may be because we use translations that have old, outdated words. Right? Uh, it may be an idea in one culture is difficult to convey in another. I'll give you an example uh, of this. Uh, we have a word, uh, you've heard this uh, every once in a while, it'll come up and you hear about Yom Kippur. What's Kippur? Well, Yom is the word for day. It's just the Hebrew word for day. Like, what day is it? Uh, Kippur. What is Kippur? So, so this is a, we don't have that in our Bible. It's not in your Bible. Uh, and so what is Kippur? It's just a strange word. It's a Hebrew word. And the problem was, when in translating the Bible, um, is that because Kippur is a Hebrew tradition, it's a, it's a Hebrew uh, concept, this particular concept does not exist in other religions. Uh, Kippur is what we call the, uh, uh, the Day of Atonement. Uh, it, it's around that idea. And no other, no other religion really had this idea of, uh, of getting rid of past sins Right? And, and we're, we're familiar with the Day of Atonement and all the sacrifices that had to be made and, and God formed a relationship. And so English, English decided that they would come up with this word atonement uh, to, to describe what, as best they could for English-speaking people, what this was. And, and you're like, well, where did they get that from that? Well, it's pretty simple. That's where they got it from. That's the idea. This is the best we can do to try to describe for people what Kippur is for people. Uh, it was this, this celebration that made this whole event around this whole day that made God at one with man. That's the best they could do. And they had to make up a word for Kippur. At one minute. Right? Or atonement. That sounds so much more religious than at one minute. We wouldn't say at one minute. The day of at one minute. But that's what it is. Uh, and so, so, so lots of ideas uh, are, are difficult to convey uh, in languages and in, 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 in various um, things. Uh, some descriptions, um, when we go through the Bible, some descriptions are difficult because the allegory doesn't seem to fit. Right? Uh, so, some things Jesus would would give a. a you know, when I look at allegories, I like my allegories to be pretty straightforward. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not really an abstract thinker. I like, here's the thing. Okay, this represents this thing. And I, I, that's how I like, everything needs to represent something. And you can get in trouble doing that with your, with, with your parables when you're reading it. And one of the problems is that Jesus would, would tell allegories, or he would tell multiple allegories that's similar, and he would pick himself as different things along the line. Like, uh, for example, here he is talking about, uh, you know, um, enter by the door. Okay, and then he was talking about a sheep pen, go, go in by the sheep pen, right? And then that's, that's what he was, you, you go in by the gate. I'm the gate. 
And he turns around and saying parable says, I'm the shepherd. I'm like, you're taking up all the objects and this is not fitting my allegory. This is not how I think, Jesus. I, I, this is confusing to me. You've got everything. Right? Well, Jesus sometimes is the only thing that fulfills everything. Like, well, you know, that's me too. No, while we're at it, I'm going to take this one over here too. That, that's me. Uh, he did this with, um, with the Passover. And we, we, uh, we look at Passover. If this is the week of Passover, the Day of Atonement is actually a different day. I apologize for that. That's a different day. But you know what? Uh, Jesus combined both of them. So, sometimes, uh, remember, um, and John the Baptist is, is uh, getting ready to baptize Jesus. Jesus comes down and, and John the Baptist says, Behold, who? Behold the Lamb of God that does what? John the Baptist was wrong. Lambs of God did not take away sins of the world. Go back, read the Day of Atonement. It was a goat that carried the sins off into the wilderness. John, you're wrong. No, I'm not. Jesus does it all. He's a lamb. He's a goat. We're just going to combine the Day of Atonement and the Passover. We're just going to kind of combine it all into one happy thing. It doesn't fit the way I would write allegories. I would like my allegories. I try to keep them separate. So let's talk about this one, then we'll talk about Jesus. No, I feel, I fulfill it all. I'm good with it all. I'll take it all on me and put it all on me. And that's what, uh, when we come to some of these titles, we run into some of, some of these problems. Is really the way we think that's the problem. So as we lead up to Passover Sunday, we're going to look at, uh, at, a, at another title today. Uh, and we find this one in Romans chapter 3, 23 through 25. It says, For all sin, you know this one really well, all sin and fall short of the glory of God. I said that wrong. Let me back up. All sin and fall, continuous present, short. That means you continue to do it of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over their former sins. In this one, we find several problems which we discussed already. What in the world is a propitiation? One of the problems is that this word is a word that came into usage in the 1300s in English. The last time it was regularly used, other than by people reading the old King James, right, was like in the early 1800s. That's like the last time this word was at all used outside of a literary sense. No one here knows what a propitiation is unless you went to Bible college or, or it, that's the people who know me. What's a propitiation? I don't know. But it sounds good. It sounds very theological. Even if we did know and study what the word is, right, we have difficulty communicating the concept of propitiation. So, as you say, Jesus sums up, and, and, and as we talk about propitiation, we're actually, as we say, we're more talking about the Day of Atonement than we are talking about Passover, but as we say also, it's all kind of combined in the New Testament. Right? Uh, Peter combines the two. As we, as we would look at Peter's letters, he combines Day of Atonement and, and Passover. 
all in one thing. Bearing our sins on the cross, right? As a lamb, he says the same thing. The one that bore the sins was the goat. Jesus is the fulfillment of all things. And so, as we look at propitiation, to understand what this is, we want to get a little familiar with the concept before, as, as we've been going through this series, looking at developing a relationship with Christ on the basis of these things that He does and, and these things that He represents for us, they're all aspects of the relationship that we have with Him. So we have to kind of know what it means before we can have a relationship with Him on this basis. So we're going to look at this. It has a literal and a, a conceptual idea. Literal would be here in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 2. It says, A tent was prepared. The first section in which the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence were in there. That's called the holy place. Right? And you walk in there. Uh, now, uh, behind that second curtain was another place called the most holy place. So the priests would go into, regular priests could go into there. They did it every day. The most holy place, the high priest could go once a year. That's the Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Uh, so he went, uh, behind that second curtain was the second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant, which was covered on all sides with gold, with the golden urn holding the manna inside this box, Aaron's staff that budded in the tablets of the covenant, and above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Someone, someone, um, I don't know if that's the actual model or if that's just the drawing, but I found it on the internet, so I, I know this is accurate. Uh, that's a fair approximation I guess my guess is as good as any priest because they didn't see it either Uh, whenever they wanted to travel anywhere they dropped a big camel skin over it and carried it so priests didn't even get to see it when they were moving it around nope that's how you die don't look at it so, so this mercy seat is important. When we say the mercy seat, that is the same exact word as propitiation. It would have been a lot nicer if they would have just said mercy seat uh, instead of propitiation, but they decided they needed a theological word for that. And I don't know if you can find it, but the, the mercy seat is right between those two angels. It was a, it was a lid. Uh, in here is, is not a lid. It's just kind of a... I don't know what that is, but... Uh, that would be a lid, and it might look like that, or it might not. But they lifted that off, and they could put stuff in it. And inside of that thing, they had the Ten Commandments. I don't know if it was a big thing like that, or if maybe this was really huge. I don't know. Uh, but but they put this this uh, rod that that had the the the, the blossoms on it uh, from from Aaron. They had all these different things in there. Some manna from just remember. Uh, the, the time in the wilderness. They had all these little things inside of it. But what was important was not what was inside of it. Those were just mementos. Little things, like a little time capsule from the past. Hey, look at that. Remember that? What was important was the mercy seat. The mercy seat was where they, uh, when they would kill this goat, if you were the, I guess, one of the goats. I don't know if you were lucky either. in either case. Uh, the, the goat that died, they'd bring his blood and put it all over this nice, shiny box. 
that's not what I would do with the gold in my house. But but if you got gold in your house, you probably wouldn't do that either. But but they they poured blood all over them. I wonder how how wonderful that looked after thousands of years of doing that. That must have been looked just like a nasty mess. Must have been a pretty stinky nasty mess in there and do that to your shiny gold. And that was the most important thing that happened all year long. Poor blood on that shiny box. That space between the angel's feet. And God said, now we are at one. Strange. The mercy seat. And Jesus says, I am the mercy seat. I am the place. Think about this. Jesus is like, I'm taking everything up. I'm the mercy seat. I'm the blood on the mercy seat. I'm the goat that died to give you the blood on the mercy seat. Jesus is like, I'm just taking all the symbols. Just give me all. I just take it off. It's all me. And so there are some concepts that come out of this when we talk about being a, a propitiation. What that means. First John 4, 10 says, In this is love. Not that we love God. That's, that's not where we learn what love is. No. Rather that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And so, so it's not just the... the the place, the little lid with blood, but the concept of being a replacement. That was a part of this whole thing that that these people were gathered outside of this holy place. They would gather around the tent and they would start saying all their sins as this whole event is going on throughout this day. Imagine trying to have to remember all the bad things you did all year. We're going to be here a while. Grab a snicker. We're going to have atonement for my past sins. And then this thing is, this goat is going to take my place. His blood is going to be representative of me. It's going to be the replacement. And Christ says, I'm that replacement. I'm giving my blood when it's really yours that should be being sacrificed. And so, this is a foundational concept in Judaism. And, it, and we bring it forward into Christianity. All these things are dependent on Judaism to establish these ideas. He taught them the basic ideas so that when Christ comes, it's not, it's not all new. When, when they start giving these examples, when John starts saying, Here's, Behold the Lamb that takes away the sins of the world, they kind of get the idea. When Peter talks about a lamb without spot and blemish, when he starts using these symbols, they're already familiar with them. Already, I, I already get it. I understand it. And they understand the significance of what Christ is doing. So the first one is replacement, and the second one is appeasement. Indeed, under the law, Hebrews 9.22 says, everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. People ask, why did Jesus have to die? And it's not quite the right question. As though Jesus was forced into it, like, there's this law of the universe that says, because God said so. That's why. You know, we do this with our kids. But why? Because he said so. No, that, that's not fair. Jesus went through it too, people. Why, Dad? Because I said so. 
This is the way it is. Why isn't there another way? No, this is the way. Because I said so. I don't know why blood was chosen. I have some theories. I don't know if my theories are correct. It's not really worth the time to go through the theories. Because the Father said so. When we say appeasement, it's not, as we said, it's not that, that it made God happy, but that it satisfied a requirement, a law of the spiritual universe, that things are purified with blood. That is where the mercy is. God's not forced to do anything. But He chose it this way, and it has to do, I believe, with the history of the relationship between God and man. We'll move on to what we really want to talk about, which is knowing the mercy seat. Knowing Christ, knowing this place of mercy. Luke 18, 10-14, two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, the other was a tax collector. Know the story well, right? The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this way. He said, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other men. Sorcerers, just, adulterers, or like this guy. He is really bad. Monday, April 15th. Right? Ready for it? I've got my extension in, so. No, I can do that. I've got a couple months. Oh. I am so thankful I'm not like this guy. He is a tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of everything I get. But the tax collector stood afar off, would not lift up his eyes to heaven. He's the most self-aware tax collector in the history of man. And he beat his chest, said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other one. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, there, the word mercy appears so many times in the New Testament, but this time is a unique time in the New Testament because this word is the word propitiation. It's the only time, other than the reference to the mercy seat, it's the only time in your New Testament that, that the, this word mercy is translated from propitiation. It's kind of interesting. What does that all mean? He was very aware. And talk about his self-awareness. He was aware of two things. One of all, well, first of all, was his condition. He was aware of his problem. The other guy was really oblivious. Had no idea who he was or his own horrible condition. This guy was aware of his condition, but he was also aware of the cure. Be merciful to me. I need propitiation, is what he's saying. I need a replacement. I need fulfillment. Where was he at? He's at the temple. He had some awareness of where he was, and, and, and he didn't understand everything about Christianity. But this is what's important. He knew where to go. 
He knew where to go. I'm going to the temple. That's where propitiation is made and that's what I need. I need mercy. In calling Jesus the mercy seat, Jesus becomes a location, not just a thing. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the world. It's important. And I'm going to get to why in just a second. Now, I want to, I want to back up just a second and, and, and emphasize that point that Jesus is a location. Because as we... Let's, let's look at this verse a little bit more. There's kind of a lot of thoughts kind of wrapped up in one. I'm not sure which to, to give first. To know the mercy seat, to know Christ, is to know His passion. Right? What This whole month we lead up to, and we even call it the passion, right? We will call this the passion. What What is the word passion? You probably don't... Our word passion and the way we've used it has gotten so far away from what the original word meant. Word passion, you're like, that doesn't seem like an appropriate word to use for the Passover. The word means suffering. When we think of our word passion, we don't think of the word suffering, typically. We think of desire. We typically think of a, a romantic relationship. Something like that. Or, or we might use it of, of a, a, a person uh, who has this, this uh, you know, his passion in life is this thing. You know, that's the way we use the word passion. We don't use it like suffering. You know, you think about it and it works. You suffer for your passions, don't you? You sacrifice for your passions. If your passion is this, you go through all sorts of suffering to do those things. You have kids and you have family and you will suffer. But it's your family. So you're like, okay, I guess that's, that's the deal. This is what you signed up for. It's our passion. It's our desire. So we're kind of okay with it. We suffer for passion. Your passions will cause you financial loss. You look at the things that people spend their money on. Good grief. It's my passion. All right. People spend stupid money on stupid stuff. It's their passion. <laughs> know his passion. Do you know Christ's passion? He's the mercy seat, not just for me. And that's the problem. Sometimes we think that the mercy is reserved for me. We've all, at one time or another, or multiple times, had that pit in your stomach when you see in your rearview mirror multicolored lights. Yeah. And ah. Uh, you immediately start thinking of financial repercussions. Time, I was on my way. Excuses is the next one. 
Hey, you go through this thing, that, that pit in your stomach, and you know you're not getting away with it, right? Some, some people are lucky. They get away every time. But not me. And just that pit in your stomach. You want mercy. Because it's reserved for you. We've all had that time where the guy blew by you on the highway and you wish so much. You look around. Or the guy cuts you off and it's like, run four, you know, four cars through the red light. And like, where's the car car? Where are the ones you need them? Every once in a while. Not often, but every once in a while. You get that satisfaction. The satisfaction of seeing the lights come on and someone gets pulled. Yeah. Where's your passion? You don't feel sorry for that guy. He deserved it. He's got the same pit in his stomach. Doesn't he? He gets the same pit in his stomach and he deserved it every bit as much as you did, right? So why do I feel differently for him than I do for me? Because... Mercy is reserved for me. Justice is for you. <laughs> he is the propitiation for our sins. Yes, my sins. Uh, <clears throat> and not only ours. But for the sins of the whole world. God has reserved himself as the place of mercy for not just me. The whole world. Know his passion. That's his passion, is the whole world. It's a lot of passion. And it has caused him a lot of suffering. Because passion causes suffering. And so here's the challenge. It's a simple challenge, not a question. Just a challenge. Very simple. It starts small. Bring one person to the mercy seat. He's a location. And not everybody knows where it's found. Some people are lucky to know where it's found. Here's where it's at. Not everybody knows. Everybody wants mercy. That's enough. This has lots of different ways it can be done. You might know in yourself how to bring them to the mercy seat. Maybe you're not there yet. Maybe you know where people are who can bring them to the mercy seat. So it might look like inviting somebody to church. If that's where you're at, that's fine. There's going to be a sermon and we're going to be talking about Easter because that's what every, and the whole world will talk about Passover and Passover next Sunday. The whole world is thinking about it. TV shows are talking about it. Everybody will be talking about the passion Bring someone to the mercy seat. Maybe you know how to explain it to them. You don't have to bring them. That can come later. Maybe you can address their need directly. 
but you know where he is. You know where the mercy seat is. Bring one person to the mercy seat.